This is banter. <laughs> well, let's count it down. A banterless, well, I guess if this, are you recording now? Yes. Duh. Okay, then mm-hmm. a minimally banterful, banter-filled episode. Give it anything like a banner day, banter-filled day, or banner day. A, a minimally bantered day. Cash, just quit while you're behind. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, huh? Counter down. Five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Hotchner, uh, expert in air freaking oddity material and U.S. postal counterfeits, and you're listening to Stamp Show here today. Look at them, madam. Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Oh. This is the gentle art of philately, otherwise known as stamp collecting. Here's a pile of stamps carefully culled from swap meets and garage sales. Rufus, what are you thinking of? Oh, I was just thinking of all the years I've wasted collecting stamps. Oh, like stamp collecting. Now, that's all right. That's quite a nice hobby, that. Yes, but it's not enough. Don't you understand? I'm lonely. I'm so terribly lonely. All right, Homer. You beat those stamp Nazis with good old-fashioned American complaining. Homer, if it weren't for you, we'd be at the mercy of weekend philatelists. You know, why didn't you just say stamp collectors? Because I'm tired of dumbing myself down for you. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like, people actually watch this show. I was, I was actually pretty surprised. I'm Ernest Borgnine. I collect stamps. From Spain and two from Japan. I got a couple from Israel and Azerbaijan. I got a plenty from Poland, but none from Sudan or from Fiji or Uzbekistan. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together. Welcome to Stamp Show Here Today, episode 120. I'm Kaj. Stay pink, soft, and oily. I'm Scott. That's gross. (laughs) I know. (laughs) That's Tom. (laughs) And I'm your host, Dawn. Last Sunday was National Unicorn Day. Woohoo. Well, that's a... Interesting point. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) Also, this day in history last week, Mark Twain got his steamboat pilot's license and the first shots of World War One happened last week in Guam. In Guam? I thought this was interesting. Guam, sir. Why Guam? There's nothing going on in Guam. The first battle that the United States fought in World War One against the Germans was in the little island country of Guam. I don't think there was much fighting involved. Well, a ship sunk. Yeah, but no shots were fired. Well, yeah. yeah some somebody died. But no shots were fired. Yeah, they uh there Well, but wait a minute. She just said the first shots of World War One were fired. Yes, I did. So how could you say they were and they weren't which one is it i think it was the first somebody's lying to me it was the first battle but i don't think it was actual shooting the story is that uh the cormoran which is a uh was a large flightless bird it is and also it's the name of a boat that the germans had that was zipping around uh 
creating havoc in the area. And the Japanese and the British chased it. And they chased it to Guam. And it landed at Guam because it ran out of coal. And the Americans, you know, they said, hey, can we have some coal? And the Americans said, no. Now, at this time, the Americans were not in the war. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Was this where, because isn't when the Americans came into the war, that's where it started there? Right. So, okay. So the ship ran out of coal and was sitting there, and the Americans said, you got to leave. And uh, the Germans said, we can't. I mean, unless we row this thing or tow it, it's not moving. So the Germans sat there for about six months, and some of the Germans married Guam ladies and stuff like that. And uh, finally, the Americans went into war, and they said, okay, now we're at war with you. And they said, okay, well, then we're going to sink our boat. So they scuttled the Cormoran, and it sits somewhere in the bottom of Guam Harbor. And for those of you who say, what does this have to do with stamps? The Guam Guard Mail locals, this is a really big thing. A lot of the Guam Guard Mail, you will see stamps with the SMS Cormoran on it. Now, these are not the original Guam Guard Mail. These are the post-1960, uh, when they were allowed to do the local post. Well, it's a local post issue. And I always wondered why this ship was on here. And now I know. It's the first battle of World War One. And we won. And do you know what guard mail really is? It's a military term for mail that's carried by a military person from one post to another outside the official government mail system. Isn't Guam technically not a something? It, it's not. It, it's a. It's got a special. It's a U.S. Status. It's a U.S. possession, and uh, residents are allowed to vote in U.S. elections. So yeah, it, they are. They I are. thought they weren't. No, they are. They are absolutely. Oh, okay. They're considered U.S. residents, even though it's a U.S. territory. Right. Not, they're not, not U.S. State. citizens. They're U.S. residents. Yes. But I didn't know they could vote. Oh, yes. Anyway, I, there's something weird going on there. Anyway, now I I, I don't know if the locals can vote, but there are uh, military installations there, so there's always uh, campaigning and go and and voting and things like that for the military that are stationed there. That makes more sense, uh, if I remember correctly, and that's why we invented Kaja's corrections for when I don't. Uh, people on Guam actually do not vote in U.S. elections. Right. I believe they have a representative in Congress, uh, a non-voting representative. Right. Just like Washington, D.C. And Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico. I want them to be states. I'd love to go to Guam. Well, <laughs> they have to want to be states. Oh. Come well, on, Guam. Well, the, interest, <laughs> the interesting thing about Guam is when you look at the map during World War One, all the uh, German territories, all, you know, the Kaiser's Yacht issues. Absolutely. It's like this big, huge area in the South Pacific that the Germans had. They had this really, really huge area. Of course, it was just little spots of islands, but this gigantic area. And then there's this little finger poking into the side, and that was Guam. And that's the only thing they didn't have 
out of this big, huge area. So interesting. That's where the Kaiser's yacht stamps come from. If uh, people are aware of those, if they're not personally, I think that the blue ones are like right up there with the uh, blue nose. Really, really nice looking stamps. Yeah, they generally are neat looking stamps. Don't we have a cough button? <laughs> Close enough. I guess we don't. Anyway. No, I told you you could buy one. Ah, so buy your cough button. Kill so that every, there's a thing that you can do so everyone could actually be able to mute themselves. Mm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Much higher tech than we have. We're lucky we're just On not par s- with the tech. You just have to spend more money. Yeah. We're kind of the equivalent of sitting on our porch and yelling at people. In a with high- a megaphone. Yeah, in a high-tech way. Yes. So to explore more about collecting, we have Calvin Murphy here to talk about magic cards. If you think this has nothing to do with stamp collecting, then just listen. I think there are some very strong parallels. So Calvin, what are magic cards? Hi, I'm Calvin Murphy. Um, so Hold magic- on, hold on. Murphy. I know another Murphy. There's a Murphy somewhere. Oh, sh- it's an Irish name. It's pretty common. Yeah, oh, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Hi, I'm Calvin. Um, so Magic Cards, their game from the 1990s, they're, they have exploded in popularity. And uh, there are pieces and cards that are actually very sought after, very, very rare. Uh, one of them being Black Lotus, which only had a print run of about 10,000 in, in the alpha. Now, this is Magic the Gathering, which yeah. is a collectible yeah. card game. And why is it called a collectible card game? Because obviously it's a game mm-hmm. that the kids are playing, and it's obviously cards. Right. But why do they say it's a collectible card game? Because you go through the game, and there are rotations. So basically you have standard, you have modern, you have legacy, and then you have vintage. Well, th- those are the formats for playing. Right. But standard is only the past couple of blocks. When standard moves on and more cards are printed, some of those rotate out. Modern is 8th edition and up. Legacy is throughout the whole entire game, except with um, a couple of bannings. Vintage is everything with a banning and restricted list. The restricted list is restricted to one card uh, per deck because some of them can be really crazy. So each individual card has a text on it that tells you what the card does. Absolutely. And these are collectible in the sense that people want to collect one of each mm-hmm. because instead of just playing. Right, right. Uh, but you do get the crowd, the uh, B-A-G, <laughs> the broke-ass gamers. Uh, they, they, they'll, they'll buy a, any copy. But you get to someone like me, and then you get to somebody who are also with, uh, with collecting. They want the original prints. They want the old, and they want and they the want most, them in good condition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I know, I know Collectors Universe does grade yeah, cards along with their sports cards. They also grade these magic cards. Absolutely. So, so you have different time periods. You have the old stuff, the medium mm-hmm. stuff, and the new stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. Quality matters. Absolutely. Yes. You have different scarcity. Yes. yes. I wonder, does that sound like stamps at all? <laughs> In fact. Well, the I think the one of the differences is the fact that these cards were printed in different scarcities, where stamps are just issued, and they 
print as many and they sell them all. And and these stamps or these cards are actually intentionally limited in the number. So when you buy a pack of cards, uh, there's a distribution. You get a rare card and then you get a couple uncommon cards and then the rest of them are common, meaning that if you bought 200 packs of cards, you would have a lot more of the common ones and very few of the rare ones. In fact, that can also vary between set. There are common cards in certain sets that are actually very rare because um, magic was low back then. Well, because they were well played. Absolutely. And and then so that you know, the more you play a card, generally the more wear accrues. Well, not only that. Sort of like when a stamp gets used. Yeah. Yeah. Certain sets, they even the commons are considered rare mm-hmm. because they have been reprinted less. Yeah, it all deals with the scarcity in the actual number of items and then demand how good the card is. Yeah. Right. You yeah. you can have a, a, a ra- uh, something that was part of the rare printing, um, meaning low distribution, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. and it can be fairly common or inexpensive today because there's no demand. It's a card that doesn't work well with others, uh, and so it wasn't very popular. Right. And so either there's still, you know, most of those survive or people just tossed them out. So it could be like um, you have stamps from some dead country that nobody really cares about versus some stamps from a country where the economy is booming and there's six billion people and they all want to start collecting stamps (laughs) to recapture their heritage. Yeah. Right. So you have demand and you have supply. You have condition. You have limited print runs. Yeah, it sounds like stamps. Uh, one other thing, though, too. We were watching that. Uh, what was it a YouTuber watching yesterday? Yes, we were. They're also collectors of errors. Mm, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah, good point. Good point. And signatures. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you have signature autographs. You have an artist's signature on a card. You have, uh, or or uh, mm-hmm. maybe it's a particularly good Gamer, you know, when you have uh, sports figures autograph a baseball or a basketball. Well, if you have a, and they they actually compete and win large money prizes playing this game. If you have somebody who's won that, sign your cards. Or uh, sometimes what they'll do is they'll um, they'll create that deck and sell that deck as a as an as a product, and Mm -hmm. they'll print those cards as a product. So you're saying that there are professional magic players just Absolutely. like there are po- professional stamp collectors. Yes, Absolutely. there are. Yeah. So let's see. Since these are, re- other than the words like legacy versus, let's say, classic U.S. or 5th or 7th edition or 8th edition versus the term we use in modern. Right. How is this market for these cards because it it, i i want to discuss this because we have something which is almost exactly the same as stamp collecting what does that market look like for the almost like stamps so can i use an example i know it's going to be a little specific but there was a set called conspiracy Two: take the crown and when i'm looking for cards when i'm looking for something to either purchase or to resell i'm looking for something that is legacy playable basically meaning it can fit in about any other deck and i found this card called leovold emissary of trust basically 
it gives you a huge advantage by allowing them to only draw one card per game or per uh, turn. That card when I got it was nine dollars each. I'm kicking myself because the foils now cost three hundred and fifty dollars each. Uh, well, what's a foil? Uh, foil is basically a just shiny. So it's it's a special edition of a normal card. Yes, but it, it went from nine dollars to three hundred dollars over what period of time? Uh, about six months. Six months. Mm. It had a huge boom. Well, I've known stamps that did that. I mean, I know oh. quite a few stamps that have done that. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I think one of the one of the interesting things is though sometimes when they print a card like that and it becomes very uh, the price goes up very quickly. Uh, the, the company that owns the game will reprint the card, trying to make the card more available so more people can use it. And sometimes it drives the price down and sometimes it doesn't. Right. We saw that with Tarmogoyf, which has been reprinted eight times, it's uh, it, four or five times and, realistically. And, and that's a popular card. And it's still an $80 card. So while you were talking about it, I ran a little quick thing on uh, eBay. <coughs> U.S. stamps currently have th about 336,000 listings. Mm -hmm. Since we've discussed Disney pins in the past, there are about 250,000. Oh. Magic, there's over 600,000 right now. So right now on eBay, Magic is about double the size of stamp no, it's about the same size as pin collecting and stamp collecting together. <laughs> well, that's just and that's that's just U.S. stamps. I didn't do worldwide. Well, and that's eBay, right. and right. I and I know there are a number of other sites that also are clearinghouses specifically for cards like that. Well, you, you would expect that because younger people collect cards. Older people collect stamps. Older people tend not to be as much on the computer, whereas every young person I know is on the computer. So what we're saying is magic is a gateway drug to stamp collecting. <laughs> I think that it. the reason I'm bringing this up is because I think that it is a perfect example of another market that stamp collecting could be. Oh, Absolutely. And the way that the magic card market has developed is a, is so like the stamp market. And so if we can understand the magic card market, it'll give us a little insight into the stamp market. I actually I agree. I actually brought a gift. Oh. Read it out. Oh, it's for me. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh, it's a chicken. Go ahead, read it. It What's says the, the name of the card is The name of the card is the Mesa Chicken. Low Lord of Layers, profound comb-crested hero of hens, father of feathers. I like this. Crowning sun caller, weaver of wattle, elder of eggs. It's a uh, two-two for two, <laughs> and it's a and it even is from a uh, set that has a cracked egg. Unglued. Yep. <laughs> Go ahead, read 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 what you have to do. Wait, no, don't turn it out. What do I have? Stand up, flap your arms, oh, cluck like a chicken, and gain flying until the... <laughs> so, so not only are there the, the, the super serious players who do it for money and who do it because they love the game, but there's also these this casual base mm -hmm. who just love playing joke sets and things like that. That is cute. Go ahead, that flip it cute. over. And the other side, a poltergeist, spelt polter, P-O-L-T. It's a poultry geist. Poultry geist, yes. 
Farmer Brown never ate eggs again. <laughs> okay. And it's a flying 1-1 one, one for three from the same deck. Very yep. cute. I like that. Yeah. It'll go in my chicken collection for sure. <laughs> I have not seen this card. Yeah, I thought I thought you would like that. Sounds yeah. like Bach Thor's title. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. It does. Oh, that's what you guys named it. Yep, yep. that's Bach Thor. Mm-hmm. Bach Thor. So, additional comparison while you were reading your card. Uh... Sports cards, sports cards trading, sports trading cards, were about uh, five hundred and seventy thousand. Mm-hmm. So actually less than Magic. Yeah. However, dwarfing the competition is U.S. coins at nine hundred and fifty-eight thousand. Yep, those I can believe. Well, coins. You know, I I wanted to talk about something other than coins to illustrate stamps because everybody goes, "Oh, coins and stamps. You can't compare them. They're totally different." Well, magic cards, they're not. Magic cards and stamps are incredibly close to each other, and you can watch the two markets. But it's all about the collecting mindset. Yes. And what gets you into into that collecting mode? What draws you to it? And, you know, for some people, they're drawn by the artwork. Other people are drawn by the game mechanics. Uh, Still others are just driven to complete sets mm-hmm. and you know it's that's really like stamp collecting well here in, i you know i'm playing kind of the devil's advocate or playing like a dumb rat as opposed to a smart rat i've played magic cards since the very beginning too so i have a very mm-hmm. deep knowledge of this and I think that there are three parts of the collecting which makes magic cards exactly like stamps. One of them is a thing that you fiddle with. Yes. In magic, you're trying to make combinations, you're trying to make decks. Stamp collecting, you're trying to fill albums, you're, you're doing research on history, stuff like that. Second thing, they both have extreme artwork. You like the look of the stamp. You like the look of the card. There are cards that have value because they have cool artwork. Or by who the artist is. Or by who the artist is. Yeah. The third one is the anticipation of profit. Now, everybody says, you know, oh, we can't talk about the I word. I talk about the I word all the time, investing. I have no problem with it because without investing, stamp collecting doesn't go anywhere. If, if you want to get investing out of stamp collecting, just don't have any pro- stamps that are over like 10 bucks. It's it's simple. Then you can be like model trains. But magic cards, what's the most expensive magic card? Uh, Black Lotus. And how much yeah. would one of those run you? About 10 grand. Uh, for a beat up one. Used. Oh, for a beat up one? Yeah, about 10 grand yeah. for alpha. For I saw one uh, for, it was a beta and it was mint mm-hmm. and it was 35 grand. Yeah. yeah. So... You're talking about magic cards that have a significant value. Nobody is going to buy one for $35,000. And this is one card. One card you can put in a deck. Yep. You can only have one in a deck. Mm -hmm. You're going to spend $35,000 for this and then never expect to get money back for it. That's not reasonable. Well, here's the sad part. Get ready to cry. When I started playing magic... Um, I didn't start right at the beginning like Cash did, but I started maybe a few years later, and I went back and I bought an early 
full sealed factory sealed box of uh, card packs and I paid about $850 for this box. Today that box would be well over $40,000 if I had just stuck it in the closet and left mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, well, I opened it up and I opened all the packs and I have all the cards. But uh, you know, the sum yeah. of the cards does not equal the unopened box anymore. Yeah. I have never owned a Mox, and I have never owned... Neither have I. And I've never owned a Black Lotus. I have owned pretty much everything else. Mm. So, you know, if I had my car, cards from the mid-1990s, you know, I'd, I'd have a house. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, you do, but... Well, yeah. <laughs> for someone You'd have like, another house. I'd have another house. For someone like me who who likes to collect and likes also to play... I have no problem, for playing purposes, buying beat-up cards. Yes. But for collecting, obviously, I want at least lightly played. Or uh, or cleaner. Absolutely. Or out of the pack, fresh. Okay, so we've gone through this. Let's assume that stamps and magic cards are comparable. I'd go further than Similar. that. But let's say that they are comparable. What's happened with the magic market? So with the magic market, it it could, it can fluctuate a lot. Uh, last year, there were a series of not just business people, but uh, hedge fund people who would go out and do buyouts. They, wow. They would, <laughs> oh, that doesn't sound like anything like the stamp market. <laughs> <laughs> they would, just for giggles, they would buy uh, 100,000 Lion's Eye Diamonds. Which which tripled and doubled the price of the original card, but the problem with that is, is that what they didn't really realize is that if you just shoot the price up, broke ass gamers like me, they're more than likely just switch to a different deck. Mm-hmm. So they didn't really account for that, but they liquidate it really really fast. Yeah, that's and that's another problem because then. The- just as fast as the price went up, it comes back down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it goes further down than when it started. Absolutely. And they end up losing money. Absolutely. Well, I haven't heard well, any. That... I, I know stamp collectors have done that. I haven't, <sighs> I haven't heard any stamp collectors really making people, a lot of money People do that. that in the stock market, too. Well, yeah, and the stock market is illegal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but well, doesn't mean people haven't tried. Yeah, that's true. That's a big thing, too, with um, people that are trying to do stuff like that with the Disney pins. Because a movie comes out, they release all the new pins, people go nuts. If the movie ends up being a flop, um, Prince of Arabia, they came out with, you know, limited edition 300 pins. The stores didn't sell out of the limited edition stuff. Eventually, they were on sale, marked down. The initial people probably went out and bought those thinking, cool, new, new pins, limited edition, they'll be great. I ended up getting some that I actually... Um, they do pin trading at the parks. And I actually, one day, I stuck one on a cast lanyard. I traded him like a, just a little pin, and I put one of those on and said, here, have fun with this. Mm. Well, you, know, you told They me, just weren't worth it. You told me about Brave. That was an interesting story. Well, yes. I wanted to be, um, you know, Scottish heritage. First thing that came out, Scottish princess movie for Disney. And I think it was the first Pixar princess they had as well. And I thought that this would be the one thing that would be cool. I want to be a completist. I want to own all the pins. 
which was great, and I was 100%. I had the pins that were they released in Paris. I'd gotten the pins from um, Europe. I had all the U.S. pins, all the open edition pins that they came out with. And then they came out with two pins for Pixar employees that they were selling in the employee store at Pixar. Hmm. And that pretty much hosed the entire market for me because you – Unlike some of the Disney stores and even some of the Disney employee stores, they would have days where you could go in and, um, as a regular person, and shop there. Pixar didn't have that. You had to be an employee to go into their store. So you either had to be an employee or know someone who was that would be willing to go get you one. And it shot the market way up in value, and I kept saying man, these things are 50, 60 bucks. I said, I don't think it'll last. It'll come down, it'll come down, it'll come down, it'll come down. I stopped pin trading. It still hasn't, I mean, it may have come down now, but it was still going up when I when I got out of pin trading. Mm. So, And how high was that? I guessed wrong. They were probably well over 100 at that point. Oh. And these are pins you could probably bought in the store at the time they were released. They were probably 10 12 $15 pins. Wow. Oh. That's how it is with stamps. I mean, forty-nine cent stamp all of a sudden is worth you know fifteen, twenty bucks, and we've seen that quite often. Well, my wife and I, um, when we were were doing a lot of it, we uh, she decided she was going to be a completist for Frozen, and she had everything that they had come out with at the time. And when we got out of it, um, we kept talking about wanting to uh, upgrade our entertainment system, but we're you know broke at the time. Still now, but anyway. Um, she decided to liquidate her Frozen pin collection, and she sold the entire collection online, and we netted, I think, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1500 bucks. Nice. For, you know, pins that were probably retail less than 100 or 200 total wow. at the time. Congratulations. So... <clears throat> However, but also, so, but I, there, there's some Disney movies, things get really popular. And then when the movie dies out and it kind of goes to the background and it's been, it's been released, the pins start to come down in value because the hype about the movie is over. Hmm. There's very few subjects in Disney that retain long-term value. Hmm. You know, a lot of that stuff is when they come out with a new pin of classic characters. Maleficent, probably one of the most popular ones. Because you can collect her as the witch. You can collect her as the dragon. There's so many different ways that she appeared. Oh, and wow. Disney came out with so many pins over the time. Dawn would flip over some of the Maleficent pins being a dragon collector. Mm -hmm. uh, give the uh, listeners a little tidbit on uh, who Maleficent is, just just in case. Just in case, she's one of the uh, one of the all time Disney villains. Well, thank yeah, you. she was she was the one of the quintessential um, Disney villains um, back in some of the earlier days of Disney. So um, she was the villain for Sleeping Beauty, the lady who gave her the apple. No, no, no. no. Oh, that was Snow White. Oh, got him twisted. Never mind. I'm she not. She was she was the one with the. Um, Pricking your, pricking your finger on the spinning wheel. Oh. She cast the curse. Oh. Mm. oh, okay. Yes. Now I remember. I need to rewatch those movies because I don't remember anything. No. <laughs> so it, 
In closing, um, people who are interested in the stamp market and what happens with stamp investing, uh, there is other things out there that you can look at. In this case, I think that a really perfect way to look at the stamp market is to look at the magic card market, and that's why I wanted to talk about this today. Anything else? Thank you, for, thank you thank guys you. for having me on. Yep. Thanks, Calvin. Thank you, Calvin. You don't have to leave. You can stay here. So we get emails. So summon the answer squad. Dan W. writes, What are some time-saving options someone can use when sorting through large piles of international stamps? I tried labeling glassine envelopes, but found it slow and inconvenient because in order to add new stamps, I'd have to sift through all the glassine to find the specific country. Thank you. Uh, my experience, a large open table space helps. Well, my my question is, or lower, are, lower your collect. Uh, what are some? Re- what narrow are, your collecting <laughs> area. What are some time-saving options? It's like, why would you want to limit it? Why, you know, the whole fun of it is like trying to find the little treasures. If you have a bunch of stuff, you know, go through it. It's like, you know, I'm going to Europe. How can I spend as little time there as possible and get out as quick as possible? It's yeah. like, no, you got the stamps. You want to savor it. I don't think that's the point of the question. I think it's, you know, if you end up with a pile of stamps, say, from an album or a stock book, maybe you want to sort them all by country first, so then you can go through country by country so that you can start cataloging them and figuring out which Scott number is which. Hmm. I don't necessarily think to get through it fast. It's just to knock out the first sorting part, you know, because it's like... Well, the sorting part is obviously the least... Mm. enjoyable part yeah. of that well and that's and that's what i think the question is getting at more is what's a time-saving option to get through that boring part you know if you're put down a bunch of stamps the scott catalog if you have the all of them that's six five six volumes and going up so okay here's a canada <laughs> stamp let me look this one up okay here's a zimbabwe stamp Whoop, gotta close that book get this book you know I, I would understand wanting to get through sort everything by country as quick as you can, and then you can start with the A's and work your way down. Well, then here's what I would do if somebody dumped a bunch of stamps in front of me. I would go through and I would get all the single-colored stamps, and I would look at them because those are going to be the oldest. Multicolored stamps really started in about the 1930s, single-colors, 30s and before. Then as I'm sorting through it, I know enough about printing style to tell lithograph from engraved and engraved stamps tend to be older than lithograph so i will sort of sort them by age so that i get the older stuff the older stuff is worth looking up the newer stuff tends to all be 35 cents a stamp but again you're just sorting by printing styles you still haven't yeah, well, I have, any, and, and well, you're before, looking for before, value. But I'm not, well, that's it. I'm looking for value. I'm, it doesn't, it's not worth the time to look up a stamp because a lot of these, you know, you'll have the 60 cent value from well, a set you, of you, A lot of times you need to look it up to put it in your album. 
No, I'm sorry. Oh, if you give me a pile of stamps to uh, put in my album, uh, give me a gun because I'm going to put a bullet through my head. I know, I, know, I know what really happens if you dump a pile of stamps in front of cash. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. <laughs> I'll make snow angels in the stamps. Yeah, he does. <laughs> no, because uh, if I was actually to look them up, it is so hard to find the recent issues because Scott's catalog will show like one or two stamps out of a set of 15 stamps. And you just have to search. Now, France is cool because they have an index. U.S. is cool. It has an index. But you get a stamp from, I don't know. Korea. Korea. Oh, God, Korea. (laughs) You can't read the language. Well, actually, Korea is easier because a lot of stamps have the year date on them. Pick something more like Taiwan. Well, but a lot lot of more more modern stamps do have dates from a lot of countries. Yeah. But, I mean, if you're talking from 1960s, most countries of the world, Mm -hmm. other than China and Russia, you know, aren't going to have a year date on their stamp. If you get a pile of stamps from Russia and say, here's the catalog, find these things, you're going to go baddie. I mean, there's just some. Welcome to my world. Or Hungary. Mm -hmm. You know, Hungary, Romania. Greece. Greece. Well, Greece isn't as bad, but like Romania, the stamp mill countries. Crete? Crete. (laughs) How do you tell it's not Greece? Ionian Island? There's only three stamps from them. Yeah, I just sort those by color. Yeah. (laughs) Those are easy. But but yeah, for me, the older stamps are the ones that are going to have the value. And those are going to be the. Well, for you, those are the ones that interest you, so you wouldn't be taking this big pile of stamps. No, I I think uh, just having a a decent amount of table space available and then then just as you sort them, say, oh, you know, this side, you know, I'm going to just kind of alphabetize, you know, have a pile of A's and a pile of B's and a pile of C's. That's uh, a lot of times that's what I do when I sort uh, a group of British Commonwealth stamps. I'll sort them into A countries and B countries and C countries and D countries. And then from there, then I'll go ahead and I'll break those down into the individual countries because most of them are, I can read the inscriptions on so I can tell what country they are. And, uh, but I, a lot of times will sort alphabetically and then uh, just have a big A pile and a big B pile and, and, and so on. And then, uh, then a big pile of I can't read this language. Yes, <laughs> and that pile is actually usually pretty small. Yeah. Well, that's what Google Translate's for. Yeah, that's right. Load Google Translate and take a picture of the stamp. Let it do the work. Mm-hmm. Well, you know they have the quizzes. You know, name the country from the stamp, and they tend now all to be the new Balkan countries, Serbia, uh, you know, uh, Montenegro, stuff like that, because you can't read the language and you have no clue. You have to double check them. I think, though, I would ultimately I would have to agree with Scott. I think just ample table space mm-hmm. to just be able to create a bunch of piles. And yeah, then, you know, and then then once you're done with that, then you can put all those in a glassine. Right. So you know, I kind of limit myself to roughly you know twenty five or thirty piles, an initial sort, and then those piles then get sorted. So I I do more than one sort round. Generally, when I if I well, it's kind of like I bought a um, I bought a box lot one time, and it came with a 
box inside the box that was nothing but a bunch of um, modern plate blocks and blocks. And the first thing I did, knowing the way the U.S. catalog is sorted, is I just sat and I made, I just sat at my coffee table or my dining room table. I don't remember which now, but I literally, I just sat there and I went, Three cent, four cent, five cent, six cent, three cent, five cent, four cent, six cent. Oh, there's a seven new pile, and I just I just sorted them by denomination, you know, because they were all U.S. Yeah, and I know the catalog is going to go from three up, so it was just literally just sorting the blocks, and then it's like I'll get to measuring them when I get to them, but at least now they're all by denomination. So I mean that that's I use that basically that table method just to sort by denomination and that can. That case. So it's always helpful to have table space. Our next email is from Mike P. And he asks, what are the eBay names for those of you that mentioned selling on the podcast? Thanks. Listening to episode 27 now. My first question, why are you listening to episode 27? Did you start from one and work your way up? Just discovered us and is going through our backlog. Ah. He hasn't discovered me yet. Yeah, that's it. What, what were you? That must have been a heck of a surprise going back and like whole different cast. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. That's like 30 episodes prior to me. Yeah. Well, I'll start. I'm stamping stuff. S-T-A-M-P-N-S-T-U-F-F. I've got a rating of, I think, 42,000, 43,000, something like that. Usually have about 3,000 items up at any time. Well, um, I'm Pogi Pogi 2, and... I I have a reading probably about just under 400. I don't sell a whole lot of stuff, and I haven't been very active recently. As a matter of fact, I'm getting ready ready to pull everything I have up down um, just because it's time of year when I'm super busy doing other stuff, and I don't really have time to devote to that. So um, probably won't see much from me until later in the year. I have not yet sold a stamp on eBay. How about your uh, pins? I don't think I sold pins on eBay. I'm mostly a buyer on eBay. My wife used to do all the pin selling. So her ranking was up there. So whenever I was throwing stuff up, I just have her list it. Oh. You want to give her a... I don't know what hers is. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay. Calvin, you sell on eBay? Um, I actually just got a PayPal account. Oh. Last week. So I will be moving my stuff. Hopefully liquidating a lot of stuff. Mm. Well, that's the whole idea. But you don't have stamps. You have... Other stuff. No, no, I'll have other knickknacks and stuff that I want to throw away. Magic cards. Please buy my crap. <laughs> <laughs> Ephemera, right? Yes. That's a fancy word for crap? Yeah. <laughs> yes. That would be the name of my stamp store. Mm-hmm. Stamps and Ephemera. Mm. like to thank the following for information used in this podcast. The American Philatelic Society, Wikipedia, Facebook, and YouTube. Also, check out good friend of the show, Tony Mancuso's website, barneysstamps.com on eBay. He sells 19th and 20th century stamps at auction on eBay, with many starting as low as $1.99. We invite you to check out stampfighter.com. 
the Bloomberg of Philately with great information on the stamps of the world and their values. Thank you for joining us for episode 120. This has been Cash, Scott, Tom, and I'm your host, Dawn. Continue the conversation at Stamp Show here today on Facebook. You can ask us questions, see pictures of stamps, make comments, and add to the conversation on Facebook. You can also ask the experts your stamp questions at bluepaper at gradingmatters.com. You can listen to all of our past podcasts at stampshowheretoday.com, podbean.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And as always, keep collecting. This episode of Stamp Show Here Today is brought to you by the Philatelic Book of Secrets, the book that teaches you about repurse, regums, color varieties, and much more. Get yours for $10 at www.philatelicsecrets.com today.